You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Election interference concerns persist around the world. Governments seek to address them with a mix of threat intelligence and attention to security basics. A U.S. Navy report says the fleet's supply chain is well on the way to being pwned by Chinese intelligence. Undersea cables are a center of Sino-U.S. competition. The European Parliament warns about the Chinese threat to 5G infrastructure. More calls to rein in big tech. And the U.N. looks at North Korea and sees massive cybercrime. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 13th, 2019. Election interference concerns have continued to receive attention in several countries. Indonesia is the latest nation to say that its elections are coming under attack by Russian and Chinese actors. The interference Jakarta claims it's seeing runs from influence operations to the creation of ghost voters. Investigations into voter fraud are underway, since those ghost voters are fictitious persons created for the purpose of directly affecting results. The reasons for the reported interference aren't fully clear, but at least one of the objectives appears to be disruption and an attendant erosion of trust in civic institutions. And the creation of ghost voters suggests that at least one of the threat actors is interested in pushing particular electoral outcomes. The Swiss Post e-voting system, whose vulnerability to backdooring was revealed this week, has its users scrambling for mitigations. The system is widely used in a number of jurisdictions around the world. Some of them, like the government of New South Wales in Australia, are looking to ensure security by air-gapping the systems. The issue arises from the system's mixnet, which is designed to prevent votes cast from being linked to individual voters. Unfortunately, the system is open to manipulation in ways that could alter vote tallies. India is preparing for a national vote, and authorities there, CNN reports, are concerned that social media will become fully weaponized by contending factions and possibly by external actors. In India, weaponization is a particularly sharp metaphor. Facebook, in particular, has been used to organize violence along social and religious lines. The U.S. House of Representatives is holding hearings on election security this week. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director, Christopher Krebs, is testifying today. His prepared remarks echo what we heard from him last week at RSAC 2019. CISA sees considerable benefit from its ongoing engagement with state, local, territorial, and tribal authorities. The testimony suggests a commitment to a strong ground game informed by threat intelligence but concentrating on getting the security basics right. 
Venezuela's power crisis continues. Disputed President Maduro continues to blame U.S. hacking for outages, and he's ordered U.S. diplomats expelled. The U.S. had already announced its withdrawal of diplomatic staff, so the Chavista leader's order has an air of, you can't quit because you're fired. The U.S., Senor Maduro says, conducted a demonic electromagnetic attack to turn the power off in most of the country. But Maduro's hacking story finds relatively few takers. Most observers acknowledge that taking down a power grid by cyber attack is certainly possible, and that doing so is in all likelihood within the capabilities of any number of cyber powers. But they also think that Venezuela's tottering infrastructure needed no such push to bring it down. There's also the question of motive and national strategy, and neither of these seem to fit the U.S. attack Maduro insists the U.S. has made. But Venezuela's current agonies are instructive nonetheless. They show the widespread suffering a long-lasting interruption of electrical power can impose. Consider loss of lighting and its effect on public safety, or loss of refrigeration and its effect on food storage. An account in Wired of the difficulty of a black start, that is, bringing a dead grid back online, illustrates the consequences of infrastructure collapse. Load balancing is particularly tricky, and a lack of understanding of what caused the outage in the first place renders a black start even harder. China, by the way, has expressed its concern that Venezuela may have come under cyber attack and has offered to restore the country's power. Even if help shows up, it won't be an easy task. An internal report to the Secretary of the Navy outlines the extent to which the U.S. believes Chinese intelligence services have successfully prospected both the U.S. Navy and the contractors who support it. The report hasn't been released to the public yet, and the Department of the Navy hasn't commented on it, but the Wall Street Journal has, as it said, reviewed the report, and they have an account of its contents. The report is said to warn that the U.S. is under relentless cyber attack by China and that these attacks pose a risk to American military and economic leadership. The Navy itself, the report is said to conclude, has neglected cyber operations in favor of its preferred kinetic operations, and that it's been particularly slow, perhaps to the point of negligence, in addressing supply chain risk. The service hasn't heeded warnings that its contractors and their subcontractors would be targets of Chinese espionage, and so has neglected the threat to the defense industrial base that sustains the Navy's operations. The U.S. continues to warn its allies against the threat Chinese manufacturers, especially Huawei, pose to infrastructure. The EU seems to have moved toward agreement with the U.S. assessment. The European Parliament has taken official notice of the threat to 5G networks Huawei and ZTE might pose. Whether this leads to a ban or not remains to be seen. In the U.S., Congress is considering legislation that would lead universities to exclude Huawei and Russian security firm Kaspersky from networks where they might have an opportunity to collect information on sensitive research. Easily overlooked, perhaps because underwater, is that portion of the telecommunications infrastructure that takes the form of undersea cables. Those cables are proving a fresh field for Sino-American competition, as Huawei's efforts to develop a pervasive share in that market draw attention. Australian authorities have for several years expressed reservations over Chinese companies' involvement in undersea cables, and Australia's concerns have regional impact, as many of the telecom's cables serving southwest Pacific nations connect through that country.
Dr. Kevin Dew is a professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Syracuse University. Over the past 15 years or so, he's developed over 30 hands-on lab exercises for cybersecurity education. They call them seed labs. Those labs are now being used by over 800 schools in more than 60 countries. When I was a student, we did a lot of hands-on work. But when I started teaching security, I also wanted to do the similar thing because I, I strongly believe that students learn better from doing stuff rather than just learning from the slides and, and, and the textbook. So I was looking around. I was trying to find some of the hands-on lab that I could use. But at that time, the security was at the beginning stage. There were not many, actually, the lab that you can use. There were some, but... In order to use them, probably going to spend a whole month just to learn how to use those labs. At that time that I was I was thinking, maybe I can just develop a few. And for my own class, I wrote a proposal to NSF, get a small, very small grant. And that's how I get started. And then three years later, and uh, I said, oh, this is great. I, I got five labs. And many people actually like that. My students like that. So how about make the 30? So I started and to build build up, and I got another grant. So that grant is a, a medium-sized grant that allowed me to actually to build up the the lab, 30 labs. And initially, it was only for, for my own use, but gradually, and I put on, on the web and other professors, and they they also like to use the lab. A few years ago, I got another grant from NSF, allowing me to provide a training workshop so I can train the other people to use that I use the money basically to fly in other professor to Syracuse. So we have a four days workshop. Nowadays, uh, I think that at least 800 school, I, I don't, I cannot track everybody, but 800 people told me and they are using the lab, but there are many schools, they simply use the lab. They don't tell me, which is perfect fine. You don't need to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been a big, a big success. Uh, the, you call these seed labs, that's S-E-E-D, and it's been, uh, certainly it's spread around the world. Why do you think this hands-on approach is, is the way to go? Because when you do things, actually, the, the things they are doing is fun. Cybersecurity, it itself is a very fun thing to do, right? We talk about attack, we talk about the, the defense. Students feel this is so interesting, why can't I try it on myself? And of course, without getting myself into trouble. Now, if you can, I can teach students how to do this, and they will understand better how the attack works. And then in return, and they can actually develop a better defense mechanism. And what kind of feedback have you been getting from the students who've been taking advantage of these as well as some of the professors around the world? Very, very positive. So students, they told me of those labs and helped them a lot. Some of students, they said they when they go, go out for a job interview, what the companies ask and they can immediately actually connect with my lab, the knowledge they gain from the lab. And actually, these days, and some of students, they told me when they go to do an interview and those companies, they just... Uh, took out some of my seed lab, asked them to, to work on the labs, and they were laughing. And we did that in the class. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of feedback. And, uh, and also from the other professors, the, the feedback is, they all know designing a lab takes a lot of time because it took me 15 years, 16 years to develop these 30 labs so I can share with others. So if, if uh, any professor wants to start from scratch, Every single lab is going to probably take them a few months to develop. So having those labs and they can immediately and download my lab and they can use that for free, that saves them a lot of time. 
So they, they a lot of the feedback, they, they basically say, I, I save their time so they can focus on, on teaching uh, instead of spending so much time and developing the lab that I have developed. And Syracuse University, of course, we, we focus a lot on the on the education. So if, if we can teach well, if students learn from our teaching, that's definitely aligned very, very well with the mission of, of Syracuse Universities. And from the deans, from the, the department, uh, the chair, they're very, very supportive of this project. That's Dr. Kevin Dew from Syracuse University. You can find his free seed labs online. Microsoft's patches yesterday addressed 64 issues, 17 of which Redmond rated critical. Two of the patches fixed zero days exposed recently by Google's Project Zero. A report to the UK's Treasury doesn't directly advocate breaking up big tech companies, but it's not good news for them either. The report advocates returning control of individual persons' data to the individuals themselves, and this is regarded as posing a direct threat to the business models of companies like Google and Facebook. Finally, not all nation-state hacking is either sabotage or espionage. Sometimes it's just plain theft. That's the case with North Korea. A report commissioned by the United Nations Security Council finds that Pyongyang is using cybercrime as a principal mode of sanctions evasion and revenue enhancement. The DPRK follows the fashionable money. The report says a lot of its efforts have gone into compromising coin miners and cryptocurrency exchanges. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the VP of Research at Terbium Labs. Emily, great to have you back. Um, we are going uh, back and revisiting some stuff about Equifax, which has popped up again in the news recently. What's the latest? We are going back to Equifax, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to keep going back to Equifax for a while. Hmm. What got my attention was a story from Yahoo talking about uh, some legislative agenda that Congress is looking to kick off now in this new term, kind of revisiting the Equifax question. And this is the credit reporting agency question. It's a question about, you know, having done enough in the wake of the Equifax breach. What got my attention was a quote from Maxine Waters, who's, you know, now coming in to head the uh, House Financial Services Committee, saying that the Equifax question isn't closed. You know, she's going to come back to this and it's not done yet. And we're going to see this continue to be brought up. Yeah. So my question is this. What does that look like? If we're talking about revisiting the Equifax question, if we're talking about going back and making sure more is done, are we talking about justice? What does justice look like in this? Are we talking about amends, making amends in this case? We talk a lot, you know, and and we hear a lot about how we are moving forward as a country toward better data privacy or better data regulations. You know, in December, there were, what, 15 senators who introduced the U.S. data privacy law that they want to they try and push through here. But what does that look like in practice? What do we want that to be? How do you measure damage to, to begin with? How do you measure damage? How do you, you know, when something like this happens, if you have something like an Equifax where the issue is, is broad and far-reaching and not just because of the number of people, but because it's a, it's a credit reporting agency, it's a, it's a required service, effectively, is it enough to uh, to chastise? Is it enough to fine? Is it something where you want to put individuals in in jail for this? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about prevention? Are we talking about uh, making payments to people who have been harmed by this as some sort of payback for their damage? Or is it, you know, I saw a piece this morning actually from uh, the Tech Target blog and the title stuck with me. Uh, are U.S. hacker indictments more than justice theater? Hmm. Is this theater? <laughs> yeah. Is this performative? And not because people don't intend for it to be impactful. I think people intend for this to actually make a difference. But are we going to get there? What does that look like? Well, and and I mean, over on the the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, we we joke, you know, sadly about how no one ever goes to jail. No, of course not, because. We we wave our hands and we, we find some way to decide that it's not an individual's responsibility, that there needs to be better oversight, there needs to be more consistent practices, there needs to be more education and more support. And I'm not saying that to be dismissive of those things. Those things are important, but we have to at some point do better. We have to at some point make an example of someone. And again, when it comes to something like Equifax, it's not like you can just opt out of the credit reporting agencies. Right, right. Which is an interesting thing in, in an era where we are focusing on privacy, how to, to have this system that we depend upon that you cannot opt out of. 
no, you can't. You can't really opt out of it. The best you can do is request that they freeze your credit, which great. Okay. That means that no one can open a new line of credit, but your information is still valuable. Right. The information they have on you that category of lifetime data, there's very useful information here. There's information that identifies you. There's information that you need to transact with the world. And we're talking about these big behemoth organizations that, you know, I'm sure have phone trees 20 minutes long and don't seem to be doing too poorly as a result of this. Because again, it, it's it's the next level of too big to fail. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see that uh, some legislators still have their eyes on this and uh, perhaps long term something good will come of it. Uh, thanks for bringing it to our attention. Emily Wilson. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.